John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 264.LK1255, certificate number 17145. The Conqueror. This journey is an occasion of joy. I am taking for myself a third wife, a Tartar woman, Timogen. I share your taste in women, Targetai, but not in blood. Farewell, Tartar woman. Now, John, the uh, the energy beings of the future know you primarily as one of the authors of the Omnibus, but in our time, well, right, and and of course your musical work, which is the anthem for United Earth. Well, sure, and also just, we're, I we're, mean, as like the primary spokespersons for Earthlings when the UFOs come. You think people are remembering you? Uh, your your alien spokespersonship like thousands of years ago. I think you're going to do such a good job. Primarily, I will be known as the person, the human person that was chosen by the aliens to act as an intermediary when they finally revealed themselves to the humans. Yeah. I think I will be known as the ambassador or the anchor man uh, because I will have been there. When When the UFOs come and they say, we need to talk to humans, but they can't, they can't see us. We're just going to say UFOs? Does the future know that you said UFOs? Yeah, because it's a thing I coined, and, and a thousand years from now, all the beings will be like, right, UFOs, that's I what we I think the say. Air Force actually did say UFOs in the 50s, and it was like later boomers, like us kids reading the cheap paperbacks that didn't know to say UFOs. They didn't say UFOs, really? I think maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm making this up. Anyway. Well, I yeah, right. When they, when they arrive and they're like, oh, humans will freak out at our tentacles, or they won't be able to comprehend our our uh, gaseous nature. Our dimensional language. Sure. They're going to have to pick one human that is capable of, of interfacing and then can explain it to other humans in a way that has enough charisma and, and sort of kinetic like excitement. That, <laughs> You're like uh, the Howard Hesford on head of the class right now. Yeah, you're, I'm doing a little bit of waggling the, at the, do mic. the waggle, do a little waggle. You're and gonna, then you're going to be, be like, a drive time DJ for the aliens basically. But people will know they can trust me. Because I have a lot of integrity and there, and I'm not just some shill for the UFOs. I'm not going to be like, no, 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 you guys, they just want to suck your precious bodily fluids. Like I'm going to tell it straight. Well, there's a lot of risk to, uh, agreeing as you apparently just have to be the dignitary that gets sent aboard the mothership first, because what if they are the tentacled uh, right. kind? What if, right. they, what if they drain your blood and lymph just the second you get aboard? Well, and that's what gives me that authority when I come back to the people and I'm like, look, I did it. I went up there. 
I'm not so sure about them. It smells weird. They have tentacles. But here's what they're telling me, right? All, I'm, all I have to do is like impart the information. I don't have to, and I'll, of course, I'll parse it because that's in my nature. But anyway, I think that the sentient like carpets that are listening to this program will yeah. know me first as the ambassador to the UFOs, second, second as, the, as the godfather of soul, the godfather of, of indie soul, and then third as like the progenitor of uh, omnibus, half, half omnibus, editor in chief, right? Uh, Color commentator, <laughs> the slightly less funny one on omnibus. But people won't know maybe of the other recordings you perform. Like the algae carpets might not have your other recordings which you have done in our time, mm -hmm. one of which, uh, Friendly Fire, oh, is yeah. a show in which you deconstruct, you and your co-hosts deconstruct war movies. Right. It's a, it is another of this podcast form, although not one designed to survive all the cataclysm. To last the millennia. I mean, it's designed to survive cataclysm, don't... It's cataclysm resistant. It's like when you buy a watch, it's not waterproof. Right. It's water resistant. But for Friendly Fire to make sense to sentient uh, algae mats... Also, all of the cinematic history of war movies would have to survive. Otherwise, we're just talking about Rambo 2, and they've never seen Rambo 2. They don't even know what it is. Well, I was going to ask, uh, this is the first entry in the omnibus that's kind of about a war movie. Have you, you have not covered The Conqueror with John Wayne on your other show. No, we have talked about a film about Genghis Khan, uh, the uh, Mongol leader and uh, great warrior who swept across the world in his time. Discredited in our time, but probably the ancestor of what, like, you know, 80% of Earth or something. It's not that much, but... I mean... Have you seen these numbers that, like, a, a huge percentage of Earth has Genghis Khan's DNA? Yeah, and I mean, he, he himself did not, but his immediate descendants made it all the way to Germany. One in 200 men on Earth today, direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Yeah, I don't... Um, I mean, it's very hard to say whether or not that is real or not, considering, you know, Genghis Khan taken on pretty mythological uh, status. But the Mongol horde, the, the golden horde, right, it did take over everything from China all the way to Constantinople. And you've probably also, if you've done a Genghis Khan movie, I believe you've also done a John Wayne movie on your show. Is that right? We have done a we have done a film with John Wayne in it, yes. But the 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 film we reviewed was called Mongol, which is a uh, a movie that was made in in Mongolia. It was made in Kazakhstan. Wait, really? By a combination of a Russian, German, and Kazakh film company. Does it have throat singing? The the uh, it's actually partly in Mongolian. Wow. Partly in. Uh, Kazakh, partly in uh, Chinese, and it's a very interesting movie. The problem with it is that it's it's an origin story of the superhero Genghis Khan, and it only has it's pro it's strongly pro Genghis. It's pro Genghis, but also it's like a lot of it starts with him as a little boy, and it's all of his trials and tribulations on his way to becoming Khan of all Khans. And so there, there's only one enormous battle, and it's right at the end of the movie. Oh. Everything before that is just him. It's all the lab accident that gives him his uh, pillaging and raping powers? Yeah, it's like yeah, every every time he stands up, some other like local tribal person comes and throws a bucket of hot oil on him and chains him to the dirt, you know, and then throws him in a jail and then sticks him with bamboo and then steals his wife and all this stuff. It's and like, you're the, like the passion of the, yeah. of the Genghis. Right. And then right at the end, he's, he, he arrives on screen and you're like, it's him! It's Genghis! 
But we're already two and a half hours into this movie. Did you watch the movie thinking, why is some Kazakh actor playing this guy instead of John Wayne, who was clearly <laughs> made for the part? I think actually the actor that plays Genghis Khan, even though there everyone else is Kazakh, I think that he is Japanese. Wow. So even, offensive. even in a movie filmed in Mongolia and Kazakhstan with a largely like Kazakh staff and, and most of the actors are Mongolian, they used a Japanese guy as the Genghis Khan. That's a little offensive because Genghis is what grandson Kublai Khan tried to invade Japan several times, only turned back by the, uh, the divine winds, the kamikaze that later were inspired memorialized the, the suicide by the suicide pilots. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's strange, Problematic. but I, I think it's, I think it must be hard to put a face to Genghis Khan. He's so legendary. Uh, the guy in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is pretty good. Yeah. But he's, uh, he's an actor we've seen many times. I don't actually know who that is. The Genghis Khan character in Bill and Ted's also not a uh, Mongolian guy. That's Al Leong, the Chinese actor, or I'm sorry, Chinese American actor. Most famous, I think, for his work in Big Trouble in Little China, the greatest of all films. That guy was an Asian henchman in every 80s movie, right? He was, yeah. He was in Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Also, but, and does a great job as, uh, as Genghis Khan, like, make no mistake. Isn't this the second? Oh, no. We talked about a golden child henchman in the omnibus before. And I wonder, is he in the golden child? He certainly wouldn't be out of place. Uh, in, let's, oh, he is yeah, in the golden thank child. thank goodness. Wow. Can you imagine if you were that guy and you don't get cast in the golden child? <laughs> you would just jump into the L.A. River. And it makes sense to have a Chinese actor do it because that's at least closer than than Japanese. It's certainly closer than John Wayne. So you're telling me, so this is a movie I have not seen and honestly, sadly, have not even heard of. You're telling me that John Wayne played Genghis Khan. Doesn't it seem like just a match made in heaven? You know, picture John Wayne's kind of Midwestern drawl. That'll be the day. Well, he's also 6'4", <laughs> right? Isn't John Wayne at least 6'4"? Do you feel that Genghis Khan should be a small man because he's Asian? That's a little problematic. Have you ever, you know, one of the things that made the Mongols so successful in conquering the world was that they had a certain kind of pony that was unique, like a very hardy little battle pony. That sounds so cute. Was it cute? They're extremely cute. And if you look at them even now... The, the locals just found it so disarming, they laid down their weapons... Look at this. Po these ponies are coming. Well, these ponies were strong and hardy and could, I mean, they're, you know, they're called the Mongolian horse. They're not actually called a pony. But in fact, in this Mongol movie that I watched, they didn't use Mongol ponies. It was a, an example of whitewashing, except in, in it's like horse washing. <laughs> uh, because it's, I guess, they felt like they needed to use full-sized horses because the actual Mongol horse would be too cute and wouldn't be heroic enough. But think of the brony audience you could get for this movie if the Mongols all came into town. Oh, with the little ponies. Riding rainbow glow or whatever. But so the Mongols had this like sturdy little short-legged, basically like not at all a glorious battle horse, but like a little tractor horse. And that was how they were so successful. These horses didn't. You know, they could forage and they also could sustain a lot of damage. And the Mongols might have been also small in stature to well, ride on their they, stubby little horses. I think it's, I think even now, you know, to be tall and big requires that you consume a lot of foodstuffs and energy. 
And I think if you're growing up on the Mongolian steppes at any time, you're l largely foraging for food. Yeah, as we learned in your movie, Genghis Khan apparently had a hard scrabble upbringing. He did. He, did. he barely got any food at all. And he I was think, not eating pony meat at every meal, like like later in life. So I think you're going to be a, you're going to be smaller in stature by you know in general, just because it's very hard to sustain an enormous. You know, my great grandfather was four eleven. Really. Um, because he lived in Wales and they didn't have food. They had to just suck on rocks. You knew that, right? Well, coal. You suck on coal. You suck on you coal. You get some of that dinosaur energy. Uh, but then transfer his genes over here to America and feed it macaroni and cheese and tab like I was raised on. And uh, all of a sudden you're six foot three and 240 pounds. I think there's actually been like measurable growth in the average height of, you know, your average Japanese person since American fast food and dairy became fashionable there. Well, because they used to eat great. They used to eat pickles and fish and live to be 180. And then we're like, have you ever had a frosty? <laughs> have you ever dipped your fries in a frosty? Well, think about how many super tall Chinese there are now. Like they're starting to be known, like China is producing competitive basketball players. And, and that was not what we thought of when we thought of China 30 years ago. So who would you cast? Like Danny DeVito is Genghis Khan? Is Genghis Khan. I imagine you could find a very sexy Mongolian actor who had a lot of like, I don't know, Mongolian chutzpah. John, your, your face is really warming when you imagine the sexy Mongolian I man just, I just, just lighting up the screen with his charisma. With, on, Boy. His, on his tiny horse. He's so dreamy. What do you think that hypothetical guy is doing right now? But thinking about John Wayne on an actual Mongol horse... It would be hilarious. His feet would drag on the ground. <laughs> he is not on a Mongol horse. He's on one of the horses on from some, Stagecoach yeah, or whatever. Yeah, some beautiful Hollywood horse. Do you, what do you think of John Wayne? Do you like John Wayne, the actor? <sighs> Having watched a lot of old movies and watching old movies from the time I was a kid, like John Wayne is one of those things that's always been part of my America. He's a monument. I'm not someone who was born in the, in the 80s or the 90s even who thinks of John Wayne as just a hilarious throwback, like... I was watching John Wayne movies when I was five years old at my father's elbow. And so John Wayne is kind of like Elvis. It's hard for me to separate him from just being part of the fabric, the cultural fabric of my country. But watching him now, um, I mean, sure, he's a caricature of a kind of gun-focused American male, but he's he has a lot, an awful lot of charisma as an actor. and. Ton of presence. And he's much more nuanced, I think, than we give him credit for. It's easy to cast him as a just a, a, an actor with a single tone, but he, he's, he's quite varied. That's the revisionist take I, I've heard a lot, which is that John Wayne is actually a very subtle actor, and I, I, I just don't see it. Like, it's hard, hard to find. Even, yeah. when I, even when there's movies of his I like very much, like... Um, like Pred the Quiet Man is my favorite John John Wayne movie, and he's perfect. He's just some kind of good time Irish guy who's a retired boxer. But like you know, people say, "Oh, watch The Searchers." He where he's this tortured racist ghost of the plains, and you watch the movie, and he just to me just comes off as kind of petulant. Don't ever ask me, you know, like <laughs> like he just he just <laughs> sounds the same no matter what just happened. He might go a little louder. <laughs> like to me, the caricature kind of is John Wayne. Yeah, right. I mean, you don't see him playing a taking a novel take on the Joker in a in a in a Batman <laughs> film. He's not blowing you away with his portrayal of a sensitive gay. Uh, Did uh, I ever rancher? tell you how I got these scars? <laughs> 
Howard Hughes, the eccentric billionaire, wanted to make a movie about Genghis Khan. He, he, it was not John Wayne he had in mind. He wanted to do it with Marlon Brando. Right. And you could, you could almost see Marlon Brando doing a... Chameleonic Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the kind of guy that would you know, flatter himself to think that, eh, you know, I could play... I could play Genghis Khan. Sure, and this seems like the type of thing that Howard Hughes would flatter himself to think like, oh, I'm going to make an epic picture about uh, Genghis Khan. This is the early 50s. He uh, owns RKO uh, and is kind of making them do all these kind of big, splashy, throwback Technicolor movies. And he has a script for a cinemascope uh, retelling of the life of Genghis Khan full of pageantry and Central Asian adventure. And they want Brando for it. Brando says no, to his credit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe he couldn't get on the horse. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how big a guy Brando is at this point. Uh, no, this is like pre-on the waterfront Brando. He could do it. This he, is early Brando. Yeah, he's coming off of Julius Caesar where he, you know, he's like, I'm not just Stanley Kowalski, you know. I'm, I, you know, I, I can take the marbles out of my mouth and I can do whatever. <laughs> And the story goes that John Wayne is in some producer's office and the script is on the desk and he's like, I'll play Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan? <laughs> we should just do the whole show. <laughs> the voice. You know what, actor. Uh, and so this becomes a go picture and Howard Hughes starts throwing millions of dollars at this because he had it to spend. And the movie is, is just terrible. I, I encourage our listeners. I hope Apprentice survives so our listeners can enjoy this. Well, absolutely now it means that Friendly Fire is going to have to do a show on The Conqueror now that, I've, now that I've been introduced to the idea of it. It's a, you know, it's essentially a Western with everybody, you know, John Wayne is wearing kind of this outrageous kind of fleece vest huh? and a, kind of a Davy Crockett cap. <laughs> and <laughs> he's got a... And we'll laugh before we get to the unfunny uh, appropriation part. He's, yeah. uh, you know, he's wearing, he's got a Fu Manchu mustache. Oh, wow. And they've taped, the whole cast is white. They've taped all these white actors' eyes. Oh, no. Um, taped them to look Asian? Yeah. Oh, dear. Slanted, they would have said at the time. Oh, dear. Uh, even though no, apparently nobody noticed till 1970 that Asian eyes don't actually slant in no, any way. No, lidless. Yeah. Yes. They've got the epicanthic skin fold, but yeah, so they've taped over his eyes and they've given him, everybody has these kind of Romulan eyebrows. Right. Because apparently all Asians have- Romulan eyebrows. Romulan eyebrows, as everyone knows. Yeah. Very offensive. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout did you know that what we know about genghis khan uh largely comes from one book is it My Life by Genghis Khan, <laughs> as told to? Uh, no, there's actually a book called The Secret History of the Mongols 
No, it can't be a secret. Well, it uh, was a secret for a long time. Is it one of these Time Life uh, Mysteries of the Unexplained books? No, it is the oldest surviving work in the Mongolian language. Wow. And it um, was written, basically a single copy was written, and it's the, it's like the, after Genghis Khan's death, the Mongolian royal family commissioned this literary portrait. So it's not contemporary, but it's not also not centuries later no, once from, he's been myth-made. It's from, you know, um, 1200 or 1250. I mean, in, his, in the immediate aftermath of his death. Mm -hmm. And then it was translated into Chinese. And all we have, the only copies of the secret history of the Mongols that we have access to are transcribed from Chinese transcriptions of the Mongolian. It's back in Mongolian through the Chinese. It's just like all the Greek works we only have in Latin now right. or whatever. So almost everything that survived, every, everything we know about Genghis Khan from his perspective or from the Mongolian perspective comes from this document. You can kind of trace every other contemporary account back to having been derived from this single origin book. It's a really fascinating like tale. And I think it, within, within modern Mongolia, it's regarded as like their it's kind of a national epic. Yeah. Or, it's their foundational. Um, do you think there's a risk? It's argument. like, it's like hagiography, you know, that it's a, it, you know, since the guy, the guy has just died and he's their revered leader that nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna give you a real rounded warts and all look at Mr. Khan. Well, um, except, uh, well, and two things. I think that a warts and all look was sort of the way they saw themselves. They weren't, I mean, they didn't say at any point that he climbed on his horse and descended directly to heaven he's, from the Temple Mount. He's not Davy Crockett, yeah, despite no, the hat. No, no bush ever talked to him. It was pretty like gr grounded in reality. Uh, and, you know, and he interacted with like there are obviously like, like Tamer Lane and there are lots of, lots of other accounts. Bill and Ted. As he came through Bill and Ted. But this was like his basic story. And you know, no one still to this day knows where Genghis Khan was buried. No one knows who they were or what they were doing. <laughs> is, it, is there somewhere on the plains he got some warrior's grave? You, you know this story, right? They, they took him out, an enormous procession went out into the the steps and buried in, you know, like constructed this tomb mm -hmm. for him, but they were afraid of it being disgraced or, you know, um, uh, desecrated, desecrated. Thank you. And so they killed everyone in the procession. Everyone who knew where he was buried was killed and buried with him. Wow. With the exception, I, maybe it was like that scene in Batman where each successive guy was like, I got rid of the last guy. And it's like, Thunk. Thunk, now it's your turn. Until there was only one guy standing and he knew where it was. So anyway, we have no idea. Genghis Khan's tomb still undiscovered in Mongolia somewhere. I hope it's been found in the future. Or at least in an episode of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I bet you that the future algae mats either have no interest in Genghis Khan's tomb and we are inciting it as they listen to this. Like, what? Really? It's out uh, there somewhere? Let's go get it. Or the future is made up entirely of aging creatures with metal detectors who are just wandering the earth going beep, 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 looking for old coins. So, I mean, Central Asia is mostly, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like a Rio static sea or something? What's the word for a sea with no 
you know, it's a, it's a valley with no, you know, rivers will just run to the middle of Central Asia and stop because it's low and dry. And doesn't have an outlet. Yeah, and has no outlet. So I assume in the future, you know, somewhere at the bottom of Lake Mongolia, right. Lake Gobi, the Gobi Ocean. Go look for it, algaes. Why are you still listening to this? So anyway, like Susan Hayward is the girl that he, uh, he, he kidnaps some girl from another tribe. Yep. Well, this is all in the secret history of the Mongols. She doesn't wear, she doesn't actually tape her eyes. She's still got to look glamorous. So it's even more problematic. So she looks like, um, she looks like Susan Hayward. Like Susan Hayward. She's some Hollywood bombshell with her hair perfectly coiffed and, (laughs) and, uh, and the Duke is like, I feel this Tartar woman is for me. And my blood says, take her. So he starts this massive war. He's a very unlikable, as a leading man, you know, Temujin is, is not a nice guy, as Genghis Khan was known before right. he got his title. Right. The movie did all right. It was one of the bigger hits of, uh, of 1955, I guess. It made four and a half million. Unfortunately, Howard Hughes had poured eight to $10 million into it by this time. Oh, which is a lot of money in 1955 dollars. A lot of money. Enough to, enough to shutter a studio, basically. RKO. Um, shut down in 1957, essentially never made a movie after that. No, because of this? Because of this and other kind of high, he made another, um, Hughes made another John Wayne movie called Jet Pilot. It was all kind of throwback stuff that nobody wanted. Right. And uh, He should have gotten Elizabeth Taylor in the role. With her mutant uh, eyelashes mm-hmm. that we her, discussed her, before. Her, uh, her violet eyes. And I think Howard Hughes paid he just paid millions of dollars. Some sources say twelve million. I don't see how that's possible to to buy up all the copies of the movie, and it became one of these movies you couldn't see. And he would just watch it every night when, you know, alternated with Ice Station Zebra, I guess. So this is a thing that maybe future listeners and even contemporary listeners can't quite comprehend, which is that movies existed only in physical copies. And you could conceivably buy every extant copy of a print of a film, and then there would be no, no one will have, would have taped it. It wouldn't be on anybody's DVR. It would be unfindable. This happened to good movies too. This happened to the Manchurian Candidate after JFK was shot. Sinatra just felt terrible that there was a movie about a sniper taking out a, a politician from a wealthy New England family. And he just made sure it wasn't seen until the mid 80s. And all these people who had seen it were like, was it was that movie just really a stone cold classic? Because it was good, right? Wasn't that movie great? Did and they think to themselves, "This is some weird Manchurian Candidate situation"? <laughs> Am I being gaslighted here? Somebody came in dressed as the Queen of Spades <laughs> and was like, "You did not see the Manchurian Candidate." Wait, Queen of Diamonds? I don't even remember. So yeah, Howard. So to futurelings who aren't aware, Howard Hughes was an eccentric American billionaire who was also a pioneer in the aerospace fields. At first, some kind of a showboat who made movies and yeah. flew big wooden planes. He was a and- Ted Turner, Elon Musk type person, but at a time when people still were, you know, like if Elon Musk was dating Scarlett Johansson, that would be sort of Howard Hughesy. But then later on in life, he became almost a Bond villain. Well, he grappled with mental illness. Yeah, and lived in a Las Vegas hotel with the blinds closed. Surrounded by, you know, weird, secretive Mormon bodyguards bottling, who, and he bottled his own urine. And let his fingernails grow long. But one thing that he did famously do was watch old prints of films on repeat, including Ice Station Zebra, a, a classic of the Rock Hudson espionage film 
uh, genre. The same one every night. But watch it over and over. He's like a three-year-old watching the same Thomas the Tank Engine VHS over and over. But so Ice Station Zebra, is he's famous for having done this, but you're saying he also watched The Conqueror? Yes, and he was the only one who could. Because he owned every copy. That's insane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, not to to mental illness shame, but that is crazy. He was, what's the nicer way? He was Uh, grappling with obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, among other things. What a brave man. Sitting here, speaking as someone who has wrestled with mental illness, I think I can say authoritatively. You should be the one to say, what a whack job. (laughs) And I should be like, John, he was troubled. Yeah, that's right. Trouble, troubled. You don't you don't put all your urine in bottles if things are going well. But this is a movie that's pretty widely understood to be a terrible movie, but he would watch it over and over. That's what's crazy. Ice Station Zebra is just a boring movie. He must have had a thing for Susan Hayward? Well, you know, he, when he had a thing for an actress. Think about Jane Russell in The Outlaw, right? Yeah. Building some crazy new uh, bra for her so she could really protrude more at the audience. So, uh... One time, 20 years ago, I was driving out in the desert uh, and came to a little town. It was just like a little two-block long town. We don't have time for your ayahuasca stories, John. This, this is already running long. <laughs> and uh, there was a gas station in this town that was out of place for this little western town. It was a Art Deco gas station, a strange Art Deco gas station. Beautiful. But there was nothing in the town to suggest why it would be there. And I think it was because this in uh, the 30s would have been a main road between places that long ago stopped being a thoroughfare. Right. So there was this silver polished deco gas station in this tumble down little place. And I was attracted to it and went over to it. And there was a man in his 40s in a Hawaiian shirt sitting out front in a folding chair. And I, I was with a girl at the time who was in the vintage clothing game. And she said, hey, just so you know, that Hawaiian shirt he's wearing is worth $15,000. And I was like, I, now we really have to go talk to this guy. That's amazing that you were with somebody who had shirt dar. Oh, she was, she was very good at this job. And so this guy's like giving us the stink eye because he can, he can, he looked, if you're a guy that's wearing a $15,000 Hawaiian shirt, you can look at a girl and know if she knows that or not. You know, they all know each other in that weird world. He probably knows her eBay screen name. So he's just looking at her like, I don't want you coming around here. But we walk up and, you know, I'm a big dopey, friendly guy. Anyway, we talk to him for a while. He lets us into his gas station. And in there, he has the Airstream trailer that Howard Hughes had custom built for Jane Russell. Wow, during the filming? Yeah. And... Let's us go in, um, among other things. This guy had a collection of vintage stuff that you wouldn't believe. I still... This sounds like the kind of thing where at the end of the story, you leave and you turn around and the gas station's gone. It almost feels like that. I mean, I lay in bed at night thinking of the stuff. I mean, because I, I, when I was in there, I threw out a couple of things like, you got any Rolexes? And he just, you know, walked me 10 feet over through some crowd of stuff. And he was like, you mean like this? And it was a case of... Paul Newman's Rolexes. And it's I'm like, just like, wow. It's the room in Harry Potter that can produce whatever you want. Like, hey, yeah. Bakelite radios, boom. And what? And this guy's story was that he was a Hollywood guy who had retired early because he wanted to get out of the rat race. And he found this gas station in in rural America, Stan. 
and bought it and filled it up with all of his treasures and just lived out there, just hoping that no cool kids ever came by. Anyway, all, all he ever wanted was to keep this stuff away from other people who might enjoy it. Yeah, right. What a hero. And, and he didn't, he really didn't like that my girlfriend knew what everything was. And, and, you know, I'm just like a nerd for that stuff. Anyway, well, looking at this Airstream that had been custom outfitted by Howard Hughes for Jane Russell was the closest I ever got to understanding just exactly the kind of power and wealth he had. Because this thing inside, it was completely done in like, hardwoods. Um, I bet it was. And just, yeah, right. And uh, built-ins and, and it was, this was just the Airstream for her to sit in between takes. Right. So anyway, the, that's my little Howard Hughes So you, sh- you you got to see an Airstream the shape of a giant breast. Yeah, that's good, right. That's good for you. That was the, that was the type of thing where if Howard Hughes wanted to sweep you off your feet as a Hollywood actress, he had uh, a, a few arrows in his quiver. Speaking of little towns in the desert... You can see I'm caring more about the segues. Mm-hmm. Speaking of little towns in the desert, uh, The Conqueror was shot in St. George, Utah, southern Utah, between June and August of 1954. And when filming was done, actually, they shot some interiors in California, and Hughes, at great expense, brought 60 tons of actual soil from the Red Rock country of southern Utah, of the Escalante Valley, back to L.A. so they could shoot the interiors on an authentic stage set. Because the dirt? He couldn't get dirt that looked the same? I guess. Reddish dirt? I don't know. Authenticity. It's so important. Weird. Uh, that's weird. That, see, that's the type of thing that where, where you go like, well, that's, there's too much money there. Nobody's going to notice that. Well, it actually turned out to be possibly a fateful mistake, or at least contributed to one. In 1979, when John Wayne died of lung cancer, there was a lot in the news, people coming forward who had they you know who said there had been booms of leukemias and adult cancers in the southwest United States around the time of US nuclear testing in the 1950s. Oh. And the tabloid The Star runs a story saying essentially did you know did we nuke John Wayne? You know did did making the conqueror in St. George, Utah in 1954 kill John Wayne? Really? And uh, the next year People magazine did a big investigative look at this. No one, no one does better investigative journalism better than mm. People Magazine in 1980. True that. They interviewed 150 uh, families of cast and crew of The Outlaw, um, and they found that 91 of the 220 people who had been in St. George on that shoot had contracted cancer. No. Yeah. Um, and that's just of the 150 they could find, I think. John Wayne died of lung cancer. Susan Hayward, I think, had two kinds of cancer. The director, the movie was directed by Dick Powell, who was like a young kind of fresh-faced crooner leading man in these Busby Berkeley musicals that the Warners made in the 30s. And then he kind of reinvented himself as a tough guy, film noir guy in the 40s. This was one of the few movies he directed. He died of, I think, some painful stomach cancer. Pedro Armendariz, a Mexican actor who you might remember as James Bond's Turkish friend and from Russia with Love. Do you know that guy? Yeah, sure. I think he knew he had cancer while he was making from Russia with Love. And I think the day after shooting his final setup in that movie, he told his wife to go get him a sandwich and then shot himself in the head. Ah! Because he had no time left. John Hoyt, who's I think kind of the villain of the movie, this kind of weirdo shaman guy, he actually plays the doctor on the Enterprise and the pilot of uh, Star Trek. He's like kind of the proto-Dr. McCoy. He died of cancer. Anyway, person after person just dropping like flies. And People magazine... 
talks to scientists, talks to people on the shoot who remember just amazing dust storms whipping up dust. You know, people, Dick, Dick Powell had to wear a, a gas mask to keep from just breathing in the desert, essentially. There's photos of John Wayne and his kids on the set with Geiger counters, just finding that wherever they go in the desert is click, 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 click. Well, this was, it was all real funny to people then. I mean, they understood a little bit about what fallout was, but. People were nuts for it. It was like, this is going to be the American century. Like the Atomic Energy Commission would tell people to go watch the mushroom clouds. Like bring your family, wear these badges. It'll help us find it. It'll help us study, help us study radiation. I, I read this old editorial in the uh, Utah paper, the Deseret News of somebody who went, who was invited down to watch a, a test in, in these Nevada proving grounds because the proving grounds at Yucca Flat were just like 65 they're about 100, they're 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas. And I don't know, like 100, no more, a few, little more than 100 miles from. But St. George, Utah is downwind. Yes. So the, this, these aren't uh, tests that were conducted in Utah. They were just receiving the fallout. Conducted at the Nevada Proving Grounds, right. the former Nevada test site, and not even at the time of the shoot. Um, like a couple of years before. Yeah, Operation Upshot Knothole. Apparently, back when we were naming Boy, upshot not whole. Back when we were naming all of our nuclear tests after um, stag films. Uh, in 1953, they detonated 11 bombs, which would coated St. George and other nearby towns in in gray dust. Right, including a 51 kiloton shot called Simon kiloton. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, it's a uh, you know it was 51,000 tons. Yeah, <laughs> I load 15 tons, and what do I get? Another uh, day older and deeper and dead. Yeah, somebody who wandered onto the test site later turned into the incredible Kiloton. Kiloton. And menaced the Southwest. Uh, yeah, Kiloton, Kiloton is what we say. Kiloton, it turns out. Yeah. And a 31, 32 Kiloton shot called uh, Harry or Dirty Harry, uh, which allowed all the headlines to be at the time, you know, did Dirty Harry kill John Wayne in 1979? Lol. Uh, thousands of sheep died for which the Atomic Energy Commission blamed unprecedentedly cold weather. Well, sure. That's a that's a plot point in um, in close, close encounters? encounters of the third yeah. kind, right? Where they kill all those sheep and they that... pre pretend it's anthrax or something. Yeah, but no, it's aliens. In this case, it was not aliens. It was uh, the easily predictable results of launching a fifty-one kiloton bomb just sixty miles from Las Vegas and hoping that the wind carried it away from cities. It carried it to St. George, Utah. <laughs> right. So... Where, where patriotic Mormons will not complain, basically. So, that's right. And, you know, St. George has a long history in the Mormon church, right? It's a, a very early... It's one of the first places Brigham Young sent uh, settlers, I think. Right, an early site. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Um, so 
the number of people that were on this film that contracted some sort of cancer is statistically anomalous uh, for for the group, I'm guessing, more than just uh, would be a normal distribution. Well, that's the issue. So in recent years, there have been there's been some pushback against the idea that this is unusual. First of all, the wait pe- a minute. You're saying that in recent years, there's been pushback you can't, on something? You can't trust People <laughs> magazine? That was the, the first fake news uh, outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't actually do any, uh, they didn't get any medical records. It was all family interviews. So it was all based on people's recollection of uh-huh. who had cancer and who didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they only talked to 150 of the 220 people. And most compellingly, John Wayne smoked five packs of unfiltered camels a day. Right. Uh, if that guy gets lung cancer, it may not be because he spent two and a half months in Utah a year after radioactive fallout. And we don't know even now whether, for instance, exposure to fallout would exacerbate a likelihood of getting lung cancer. Like smoking, It could be a contributing factor, right? Smoking five packs of cigarettes a day certainly contributes to the likelihood. But if you also had exposure to some rads. I read an article in a 2003 issue of the Utah Historical Quarterly. I don't know if you have that issue hmm, here lying let me around. see. I have it on microfiche. It was a, a based on, I think, like a 2000 graduate thesis of a University of Utah historian named Dylan Jim Esson. And his take is, you know, he talks to University of Utah scientists who knew the ones that people quoted for alarmist purposes and said, who said, actually, no, that doesn't sound like them. Um, our best guess is that there would have been between one to four millirems of radiation on the set at that time, which is actually low compared to the standards of global plutonium fallout now. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, it's kind of just background noise. And in fact, you know, the, his kind of the, his main statistical weapon is the fact that even if you believe People Magazine's numbers, if even if 91 of these people, 220 people did ha- get cancer, 40% of cancer is actually what you would expect of Americans of that generation. Oh. Oh. You know, 40% of people of that time did get cancer, mostly because everybody was smoking and tanning and doing terrible things to themselves. Well, it seems like you could, it seems like you would have a good control group in the population of St. George, Utah, who are just minding their own business. Uh, is there a higher incidence of cancer there? There actually is. So uh, in, you know, at the 70s, at the time John Wayne died and this kind of PR black eye happened and, you know, somebody from a Pentagon scientist was quoted as saying, please, God, don't let us have killed John Wayne. (laughs) Uh, You know, there were already political movements afoot because people in southern Utah were discovering these high rates of leukemia and other adult cancers and had tried to get, you know, relief uh, you know, compensation from the government. This is the Four Corners region, am I right? Uh, the Four Corners region was affected. St. George is in southwest Utah, closer to Nevada. Oh. But, you know, in the Four Corners region, my own mother-in-law, Mindy's mom, grew up in Blanding, Utah until she was 12, which is very close to Four Corners. And later in life, when she had, when she contracted cancer, she found out she was eligible for a claim under the Radiation and Exposure Compensation Act. Because the fallout cloud got that far. Yeah, there are people, uh, I think, as far away as Oregon, maybe, who are allowed to seek uh, relief. Interesting. Maybe, maybe not. There's a specific number of counties, but there are clauses in this act that do apply to, I think, every state that surrounds Nevada. Uh, it, Ted Kennedy finally got it through the uh, Senate after about a decade and uh George H.W. Bush signed it in 1990, 
assuming there would be a few hundred claims. Huh. And since then, there have been 34,000 claims made, uh, totaling over $2 billion, going to people who contracted cancer and lived in areas where you can't prove that it, this wasn't a contributory huh. cause. Like my mother-in-law's cancer, her doctor said, you know, this is exactly the kind we see when we do when we used to do hormone replacement in menopausal women, this is something you used to do when women hit menopause, you'd pump them full estrogen and then it turned out it was giving everybody cancer. Right. And she said, this is very consistent with that. But, you, you know, you can't prove that the bomb wasn't a contributory cause. So she was able to claim and, and get an award, which went entirely to tools for my father-in-law's tool shed. <laughs> Sad Satan in the tool shed. <laughs> As, as Led Zeppelin might have said oh, backwards. Said Satan in his tool shed is so mad. Wow. So <laughs> there's so, there so many, I have so many questions. During the production of the film, was there any, I mean, you would think that radiation would also degrade the film stock. Oh, that's true. Yeah, no evidence of that. And in fact, you know, we can go back and look at those rocks where they were shooting and say, well, if the half-life of strontium-90 is this and cesium-137 or whatever it is is this and plutonium is this, you know, we can measure how much there is now. And you can, you can pinpoint exactly how much there was right. in, in uh, the summer of 1954. This is how a lot of radioactive dating works. And what was the conclusion? That it was pretty negligible. And the dirt that was, uh, the 80 tons of dirt that was transported to Hollywood to fill up this soundstage, what happened to it? They just get pushed, <laughs> pushed over and turned into, uh, turned into Magic Mountain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the Matterhorn at Disneyland is made entirely of, no, I, you know, I don't know. It went to a landfill or something. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that, and that dirt would have been the same issue, you know, was there enough radiation in that dirt to make a difference? Um, accounts differ. But, you know, it, it's an open question. You know, they weren't able to seek out a lot of the locals who were used as extras in the movie. I think a lot of whom maybe were Native Americans. Um, uh, again, a great stand-in for a Mongolian. So, if, you, if you have some Apache if, people standing around. If you can't get <laughs> Susan Hayward. Uh, you know, actually, Native Americans, unsurprisingly, really took it on the chin with a lot of this nuclear testing. Right. Um there are larger awards. The, the awards with the uh, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act are capped at 50000 for somebody who was just downwind and got, got cancer or some similar disease. But there's higher awards for people who worked at the test site or people who worked in the uranium mines. And those were mostly Navajos. And they could get $100,000 compensation from the government at this point or their next of kin could. Whoa. And it turns out that's problematic because a lot of their marriages were tribal. So there's no court records that the U.S. government is bound to recognize actually proving who is a widow oh. of one of these poor uranium miners whose fingers fell off in the late sixties. Wow. So a lot of these claims, people have a hard time. Well, filing. like the, the people of Polynesia. Sure. Who, yeah. The people in the Marshall islands, right. They were also downwinders of the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> well, and lost a few like fairly nice atolls in the process. Yeah. We had to re the United States relocated people before they set a lot of those bombs off, but there are people in the Marshall Islands today who can also claim for uh, government relief under the clauses of this bill. Um, and there's open cases here in the state of Washington regarding the Hanford site in central Washington where nuclear weapons were produced as early as the middle of the war, right? From the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, the fissionable material, the fissile material that was used in the uh, fat man 
and little the and Hiroshima and Nagasaki boy, bombs uh, was made in Hanford. And actually, I was reading a thing in, interesting not very long ago um, that they found they can do a kind of forensic testing on radioactive material to identify when it was refined, mm -hmm. when it was uh, condensed, and they found some. They found like in a desk that had been buried. Like they took a file cabinet. And we're just like, well, everything in this room is too hot. We're putting it in a cement sarcophagus. Uh, they real now it's the largest Superfund site there is, and and there's an enormously polluted aquifer that is gradually working its way toward the Columbia River. We're going to be dealing with it for millennia. Our futurelings are listening right now, saying, "If it wasn't for that contaminated water, we wouldn't have become a sentient mat of algae." Yeah, I was thinking it would be insensitive of us to be talking about radioactive fallout into a post-apocalyptic world, but maybe they love it. Maybe yeah. that's what uh, like, maybe that's what made all the four-leaf clovers able to uh, <laughs> to get up and walk around. They say thank you, mom and dad, but they found some uh, uranium that they were able to forensically connect to, I think, Los Alamos or or maybe uh, the Tennessee Valley, uh, the, the, right, place, the, Oak Ridge. the place there, Oak Ridge, that is one of the earliest samples of refined plutonium or, or I'm not exactly sure what I'm talking about here because I don't, I don't know my plutonium from my uranium. But, but it was super fascinating to think that there at Hanford, there's still um, stuff that we would, I guess, think of as like the ultimate collector's items of the the first year of post splitting the atom. Collector's items, you know. Yeah, you I've can't got, actually hold it or even be. I've with, got a bunch <laughs> of plutonium in my Art Deco gas station, but I'm really looking for a 1943 rookie plutonium. Yeah, that's what it is. It's their rookie card. Do you know people from that area who, like, cause there are people in central Washington who have made claims of, you know, ill effects of the radiation and contamination? Well, my family has a branch in Sela, Washington, but they are on the wrong side of the, they're upwind mm. of where the wind would have blown. Which way? Let's see. So Sela is, is to the west of, oh, right. of Hanford. But my physics teacher in college back in the 1980s was a Hanford physicist who made the trip up to Spokane, where I was going to college at the time, to teach physics to you know, sophomores. And he was phenomenal. He was a complete Richard Feynman type of like kook who believed physics was the greatest thing that had ever happened to the world and convinced me of that fact. Infectious glee. He was my favorite, uh, my favorite of all science professors. And he was as irritated as a person could be. <laughs> Maybe that's what made him so sparky. <laughs> well, my dad was born in Richland in Tri-Cities in 1949. I didn't know that. Which uh, I guess makes him a prime candidate for any kind of Godzilla or Incredible Hulk type mutation. He was born in 1949 in Richland? Yeah. So they were literally juggling <laughs> uranium at that point. They would actually um, use a uranium speculum to women giving birth. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. To, to light up the birth canal. They would rub a big chunk of it on every baby's <laughs> head just to make them smarter. Welcome to the atomic age. This is good luck. So the Richland uh, high school football mascot is, ca they're called the Bombers. And the <laughs> logo like the, the logo on their high school letter jackets is a mushroom cloud. <laughs> That's great. Do, do you know that the Albuquerque uh, minor league team actually uh, renamed themselves the Isotopes in honor of this? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Simpsons episode where uh, Springfield has a nuclear-themed baseball team that they that gets 
sold to Albuquerque. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, my dad could have, you know, maybe that explains a lot about my weird genes. Maybe we're a family of uh, mutants. Wow. I got the, I got the, the game show mutation of the nuclear age. I love that fact. And I had no idea. I had no idea that you were a mutant. Well, I knew that. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor's got her eyelashes and, uh, <laughs> the bomb got me on, uh, got me on yeah. a game show. All anybody has to do is watch a clip on YouTube of you on Jeopardy to know that somebody put some uranium under your tongue. Let's hear it for the atomic age. And that concludes The Conqueror, episode 264.LK1255, certificate number 17145 in the omnibus. Sentient algae pads, or... Saps, or, or, as we uh, call you in acronymic form. Or uh, uh, mobile uh, four-leaf clovers. Whatever the radiation has done to you, we apologize unless it was good, like me and Elizabeth Taylor, in which case, nice job. Buddy. I think it may, I think it, I, I'm, I'm counting on the fact that it did create a generation of future Godzillas, With, but they are happy Godzillas. They all have double rows of eyelashes, like Liz. Mm -hmm, they're beautiful, they have violet eyes. Tokyo's like, oh, kawaii, <laughs> and then they get squished. <laughs> we hope, though, that you have evolved away from social media. Speaking of things that are radioactive. That's right. We social hope, media. We hope that if one thing did not survive downwind of the Nevada Proving Grounds, it is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, but in the unlikely event that those things even are like facsimiled, you know the way that you can play an Atari game on your phone now? It may be that you can, you'll be able to play Twitter in the future, but it won't be real Twitter. It'll be some kind of... It'll be very easy to simulate the kind of... Uh low brain activity uh, comebacks that you'll get from Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a very, a very small ROM could probably simulate Twitter. Yeah, if you, would like, if you would like things that you already know explained to you <laughs> by younger people who don't know those things as well, <laughs> there will surely be an app for that. If you would like to tell a joke <laughs> and then immediately be able to hear someone rephrase it in a less funny way. And criticize you for it. <laughs> criticize you for their reframing of your better joke. Uh, anyway, if you want to experience all those things now and then, we put up with it for you. Yeah, we did. We, 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 we bore your sins. Uh, you can follow us on uh, our names, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter. And um, I'm also there on Instagram. Um, on Facebook, we have a group called The Futurelings, Omnibus Futurelings. Uh, you can follow our show at Omnibus Project on all forms of show, social media. All of them. Even and the ones that haven't invented yet or the ones that have shut down. At Omnibus Project. And you can email us at, email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. It's a good read. Thank you. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survives before the mushroom cloud that um, turns your cilia into tentacles, but sadly kills us all in painful, slow ways. We hope and pray this catastrophe will never come, obviously. But if it comes soon, this recording could be our oddly apropos final word to you. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.